Well, we're going to continue our study that we began just a couple of weeks ago, actually, in uh, the power of one. And we're going to go back to the familiar passage in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to go to verse 5 today, and we're going to talk about the importance of one faith. One faith. One faith is extremely important. What that simply means here in this text is exactly what it says under, underneath the one faith, the means and the message of our salvation. There is a means by which we are saved, and we are saved through faith, and there is a message that grants us that means, and it's the gospel message of truth that is non-negotiable. And so it's the means and the message of our salvation. And so we're going to talk about that together, faith. So I invite you to stand one more time and let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And as we stand and and get ready, I hope that uh, you'll open your mind and heart and let's study what God has for us in this passage today. Ephesians 4, 4 and 5. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. The one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Let's pray. Father, what a joy it is for us to be able to come to you this morning in the warmth of your spirit and in the fellowship of other brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to ascribe to you the majesty and the glory and the praise that is rightfully yours. Thank you for the joy that is ours this morning to be here in this place and to be able to come corporately together and to sing songs of adoration that come from hearts of gratitude over the holiday season and all that you've provided for us through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of this little baby called Jesus whom we just celebrated last week. And I pray that every day, every day for the rest of the year and as we begin the new year would be a celebration of all that's available, all the blessings and the benefits that are, that are ours because of our faith in this baby named Jesus and what he did through the cross, what he accomplished through his resurrection. So, Lord, I pray that you'd help us understand what the means and the message of our faith is all about today so that we can leave empowered, encouraged, and equipped to live for you the lives that you've called us to live. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. If you take a look at the text, you'll see the words one faith. And uh, so we talk about faith and what does that mean? We already know because we've defined and described several times the the word one means exclusivity. It means everything else takes a backseat to what is being said. There is no other or none other other than that which is described. There is one faith. It is an exclusive faith. And he does not share this faith with anything or anyone else. There's only one faith. It's an exclusive faith. But what does it mean when you talk about faith? There are three aspects about faith. There is what we might call confessional faith. And uh, confessional faith is simply that act in which you and I put our faith and our trust in Jesus. It's the act of receiving the salvation by faith. We confess our faith in Christ and we are saved. So there is a confessional aspect about faith. But there's also what I want to define and describe for us is the content called faith. There is a content. These are the truths that are found in the New Testament, the truths of the gospel message of Christ. They are, in fact, the foundations of our faith. And so when we see the word faith in the New Testament, many times it's alluding to or seeking to describe the faith, meaning the content of the message of the gospel that was given in the New Testament, a new covenant relationship that we now have through faith in Christ. So there is then, we talked about, a confession, a content, but there's also a confirmation in regard to faith. What do you mean by that? 
Well, I mean that faith without works is dead. So therefore, what happens when we place our faith and trust in Christ and we accept the message that he's proposed to us, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth, it has an impact on our lives. It transforms our lives. It carries over into the lives that we live day to day for Christ. There's an aspect about our faith that revolutionizes every aspect about how we live. We no longer live the way we used to live before we came to faith in Christ. We have a new heart, a new mind, a new life, and a new way of living, and that transcends now over the world that we used to belong to into the new way of living for the Lord. So there is, in essence, some sort of confirmation in regard to that faith. So there are three aspects about faith. And if you take a look at this study and you study this, and some of you I know who do that, and I, I encourage you to check up on me, make sure I'm, I'm saying what I need to be saying and speaking what I need to be speaking. But just don't take what I say at face value. I am, on very rare occasions, ever wrong. But I am never in doubt. And so uh, if you take a look at the context of what the Spirit is saying through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, there are some who would say in their commentaries that he's talking about confessional faith and only confessional faith. Then there are some who would say, no, he's not talking about confessional faith. He's talking then about the content of faith. And so they would argue, and they have their reasons to present their case, that he, through the penmanship uh, the Spirit is talking about the content of the faith or the message that we have in the gospel and the teachings of the doctrines of the New Testament and the New Covenant. And then there are some who will say, no, it's both. It's both the content as well as the confession of faith. Well, I propose this morning that it's all three of those. It not only includes the confession, the content, but also the confirmation. Because I believe what the Apostle Paul is doing here, and in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, he is taking the word faith and he's sort of culminating all of the aspects in where he mentions faith in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And there are n a number of times he uses that word faith throughout his letter to the Ephesian church. It's not that they lack faith, it's that they need an encouragement in the faith that they already have. And they have had a confession of faith. They have placed their faith and trust in Christ. There is a content that has been delivered to them through the apostles and through the teaching of the apostle Paul as well that is a part of that, that covenant, that teaching of the New Testament in which the truths of the gospel are well-grounded and well-based in their lives. But there's also, I think, an aspect of the confirmation of that faith in that they are now to live out their faith on a day-to-day -day basis in a culture that is hostile against the very faith that they they put their trust in Christ. And so I think it, it really, and I, and I sort of ask you to sort of rethink with me that it's really all three. It's about the confession, the content, and the confirmation of faith. So let's take a look at, a very quick look, at where it's mentioned the word faith and where the Spirit of God through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul gives us six aspects about faith in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, first of all, we see in chapter 1, verse 15, we see the concentration of faith. There is a concentration that we are to exude in regard to our faith. What is the core? What is at the heart? What is the center of our faith? He says in chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. How many recognize that verse from previous studies? Anybody awake out there? You're taking notes? 
We've talked about this day-to-day faith and making Christ the Lord of their lives. But I, I also want you to understand, as we take a look at this text, notice who the object of their faith is. Who is the object of their faith? Christ. Notice he says, I have heard of your faith in Christ, in the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is at the core, he's at the center of their faith. And when we talk about faith, we cannot separate faith from the person of Jesus Christ, for we will not and would not have faith without Jesus. And our faith is always anchored, it's always centered in, our faith has always found its core in the person of Jesus. You don't put your faith in principles. You don't put your faith in the words. You put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Our faith is in the person of Jesus. And so when we place our faith, we place our faith in Christ. Now, how many of you could come a myriad of different ways to church? I mean, there are several ways that you come to church on, on, on different Sunday morning. How many of you come the same way every time? Can I get a witness of that? You come the same way every time. You guys are boring, okay? All right? There, there are many ways to get to Emmanuel Baptist Church, 1415 South Topeka, Wichita, Kansas, from my house. Some are shorter than others. Some, I think, are shorter than others. But I can take any path to come as long as I know that my ultimate destination is Emmanuel Baptist Church on Sunday morning. I can come a a, a myriad of different ways, and as long as I end up in the same place, what does it matter? Well, it depends on if I'm late or not, right? As it does you. And so we have a tendency to think that sometimes our faith is like that. That there are many ways... As long as you end up at the ultimate destination, which is heaven. And I'm here to tell you that there's only one path, there's only one means, there's only one way to heaven, and his name is Jesus. There is no other way. And we find the words of Jesus himself in John chapter 14, where he is trying to console his disciples because he's told them, in, in just a little while, I'm going to depart, but don't worry, I'm going to come back. And I'm, when I come back, I'm going to, I'm going to come back because I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I come back, I'm going to take you with me. And don't you love Thomas? He asked the questions that all of us want to ask. Well, how can we know the way? And Jesus says to him, as he says to his disciples and us today, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except Jesus is the only way. And you cannot talk about faith without talking about Jesus because Jesus is the way and the only way in whom we put our faith and our trust in. There is no other way. We're not traveling on different sides of the mountain, climbing to the same peak. There are many would, would, would want us to be convinced that, that there are, while there are different sides to the mountain, it doesn't matter what path you're taking as you're climbing that mountain, as long as you arrive at the same top. That's not true here. There are not many ways to heaven. There are not many ways to salvation. There's only one way, and it's through and in the person of Jesus as your personal Savior and your Lord. And so our faith is to be concentrated on the person of Christ. And once you place your faith and trust in the person of Christ, and you've made that initial decision, in whom do you continue to put your faith and your trust in? In the person of Christ. It's in the person of Jesus that we put our trust in. 
So we've seen the concentration of faith. Let's take a look at the confession of faith. Well, if Jesus is at the core and he's the only way by which we can, can be saved, then he talks about then in the second chapter, verses 8 and 9, about the confession of faith. Notice that he says in the text, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's interesting in his confession of faith, he's talking about salvation. And someone might ask, well, why do I need to be saved? That may seem elementary to many of us, if not most of us in this room. Saved from what? Romans 3.23 says, for, the, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wage of sin is what? Death. So because we are all born sinners, we're under the wrath, under the condemnation uh, before God because of the sin that we have in our heart. All of us have sinned. Somebody said, well, why, when have I sinned? Have you ever told a lie? If you said no, you just lied. And so as a result of that, we then violate the commandment of God, and that makes us all sinners. And because of our sin, we now are under the wrath of God, the condemnation of God, and we are destined to an eternity and a life in this life separated from God and hell-bound. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only Son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He gave a gift. Why did he give that gift? It says in this passage the reason he gave it is because of grace. What is grace? It means unmerited favor from God. It means you and I have received something that we cannot earn. It's something that we do not deserve. It's nothing that we can buy or work for. He simply gave it to it. It's by grace. Unmerited favor. You did not deserve this beautiful and wonderful gift that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger in a little town called Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago who, who lived a perfect life and died a vicarious death on the cross for sins that he didn't commit, sins that you committed, so that through faith in him you could be saved from your sin. It's by grace. You can't earn it. You can't work for it. You, you will never deserve it. And, and some of us have a lifetime dealing with that complexity, don't we? Because there's something in us that we want to earn it, we want to deserve it. But he said, you can't do that because it's, it's not by your, it's a gift. Why? So that you won't boast. God knows that if you thought there was just a little, just a little something you could bring to the table and to the equation and add something to it, you walk around going, man, look how great I am. He said, you have nothing to boast about. What he has done and what he has given, and now that you put your faith and trust in Christ, is solely and completely and totally by grace. That's incredible. Grace, unmerited favor. But notice it's not only by grace, but it's what? Through faith. What does through faith mean? It means that you simply receive by faith the gift that he offers. Uh, what do you mean by that? Let's, let's take a, this, this thing out here. Let's... This is an old illustration, but it works, it's visual, and, and you've seen it a thousand times. You know, does this look like it could hold me up? I've gained probably a pound or two since all the, you know, we, 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 I had a wine bag that the, that the wines gave me. We talk about the wine bag, man, those things are loaded with calories. Doug, I don't know how in the world you eat that and stay slim, but, but even though I've gained a pound or two during the Christmas which probably all of us have. Do you think this would hold me up? You sure? You believe it? You have faith it will? You trust that it will? Well, I trust that it'll hold me up. I believe it will. Looks pretty sturdy. Is that faith? No, it's not. It's not faith. When does it become faith? 
when I sit on it. That's when it becomes faith. Until I exercise my will and make the decision to trust that this seat will hold me up, that's faith. You see, there are a lot of people that say, I believe in Jesus, but they've never put their trust in him. Is that faith? Is that saving faith? No. No. The only kind of saving faith that saves us from our sin against God is I believe it it holds me up. I believe that these legs, while they may be truths to the gospel and may be truthful, and I accept the fact that, that Jesus is the Son of God and that he did die for my sin, until I actually rest in him and on his final work on the cross, then and only then am I saved, and not until then. I've got to receive the gift that God gave me through his son. And unless I receive it and put my trust in it and sit in it and rely upon it and rest in the completed work of Jesus on the cross, I am never and cannot be saved. There are many people during the holidays that celebrate the birth of of the Messiah, of the Christ, of the Savior. They believe in here, but they've never trusted in Christ as their Savior. Grudem is one of the theological books that some of you are studying on Sunday nights. You did with Brother David uh, last semester, and you will with Mike uh, in the next semester. Grudem has in his book that the best word for faith today is not faith. Because he, he argues that faith, while is, is a, valued, a valued word in the New Testament, and an important word in our faith, today faith really doesn't mean much, the word itself. Because I can have faith that the Cowboys are going to win this afternoon, but they don't have Tony Romo. What is, that, what is my faith based upon? Hope, or you might say ignorance. I have faith that Kansas City is going to make it to the playoffs and win the Super Bowl. Is that faith? It's never happened. But I have faith. I have faith. I can't control that. That's, is that reality? Is that what faith in Jesus means? No. I believe, I believe that I can step off here and and walk on air. I believe it. I believe it. And you'll have many to tell you, believe, believe, all you take is believe. But believing, does that make it a reality? And no matter what I believe, you see, sometimes belief is not based on facts. But when you talk about trust, And trust today talks about trust in a person. When you know someone to the point where you can trust them with your life and you trust them and you rely upon them, isn't that a better word than faith? And he's talking about the confession of our faith is trusting in the completed work of Christ on the cross. So there's a confession of faith. There's not only a a concentration of faith, a confession of faith, but there's a confidence of faith. Notice it says in chapter 3, beginning with verse 11 and verse 12, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You know, God has, has a plan, doesn't he, Brother Andy? The song we just sang about this morning. You know, I was supposed to talk about faith last Sunday, and David preached for me when I was gone, and so we backed it up, and God had a plan. Because we sang about the veil being torn in two. The moment that Christ breathed his last breath, the veil in the temple 
that separated the people from the Holy of Holies, from the presence of God, was split from top to bottom, and it was opened, and the Shekinah presence of God left the temple to never dwell in a man-made temple again, but to dwell in the hearts of those who had placed their faith and trust in him. And that's what he's saying here. You see, Paul is writing to a, a, a church in Ephesus that has Greek and Gentiles. And he's saying to us and to them, he said, you know what? The Jew could only enter into the presence of God only one time a year in the Day of Atonement. And the only one person that could enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement was the priest and no one else. Matter of fact, they tied a, a rope around his ankle in case he went in with sin in his life and in the presence of God he were to die. They could yank him out because no one was going to go in there and get him if he were to die. They feared that place where the glory and the presence of God dwelt. No one had access to that presence. But here, the Apostle Paul is saying here that now we can have confidence to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. Why? Through Christ, through faith in him. Why? What did he do? He reconciled us into a right relationship with God. Remember, we were in enmity with God. We were, we were recipients of the wrath of God, and Christ died for our sin so that now our relationship could be reconciled through faith in that incredible work on the cross. And now he is our Father. He is our Abba. And we can now come with confidence we can boldly not cocky he's not the man upstairs we don't come into his presence flippantly we come carefully we come respectfully we come reverently into the presence of of the the God of the universe all because of what Christ has done for us through his life his death his burial and his resurrection and our faith in that work Jew and Gentile now I can come boldly with confidence knowing that we're going to be received. Well, wait a minute. I got sin in my life. Hey, man, that's been covered. And I've already talked about many, many times, sometimes we have a tendency to run from God when we sin, not to God when we sin, because running to God is where we find the mercy and the grace of God that's available to every believer for the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It says in Ephesians 2, again, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Why? For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In your car, in your cubicle, in your office, at your desk at school. Wherever you are, you can come boldly with confidence knowing that you'll be received and that the Father will listen to you. Let's say that all of a sudden, for some unknown reason, you decided you were going to go to Washington and you were going to go up to the, to the White House and you were going to tell that, that guy who's there to protect the White House, I'm here to see the president. I got some things I want to talk about. I'm a citizen of the United States of America, by golly. I pay my taxes. And I'm here to see this dude, and I want to talk to him. Can I see him? What do you think he would say? Uh, who are you, Jack? You have an appointment? Are you anybody important? Are you a big donor? You have a special interest? You represent anybody? Well, no, I'm just a citizen. You think you'd gain access to the White House? Now, there are, on occasions, there's, this guy, I think he's running for office now, he snuck in uninvited, didn't he? And uh, made headlines because he and his wife were uninvited to the, to the White House, to one of their balls, and, and uh, he became famous. We don't have to sneak in to see God. 
we don't have to ask permission from anyone. We have full and complete access to the Father sitting on the throne at any time for any reason to bring any request. Why? Because of our faith in Christ. That's what faith has provided for us. That's what Jesus has done for us. And yet I'm wondering how often do we fail to take advantage of that blessing and that benefit. Well, we've seen the concentration of faith, the confession of faith, the confidence in faith. Fourthly, let's look at the consequence of faith. Yeah, a consequence is a good word, not always a bad word, but there's a consequence of faith. There's a result because of our faith in Christ. There's something that happens. And I want you to notice this is an interesting text in in chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. Now, bear with me because I don't have a lot of time to explain this. I'm going to have to do it quickly. But notice verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Paul, I like Paul because probably as he's writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he takes a detour. I mean, he's he's describing the content of his prayer, and then he jumps from that to something else, and then he jumps back into the prayer. Anybody do that in here? That's what he does here. And he describes now the sovereignty of God over creation. But notice what happens in verse 16. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you. Notice he's talking about the contents of what he's praying for the people in Ephesus. He's saying that that according to the riches of his glory, he, meaning Christ, might grant you to what? To be strengthened with what? With power. How? Through his spirit in your inner being. Now, through faith, when we placed our faith and trust in Christ and we were renewed, we were born again, the Holy Spirit came in and he washed us, removed our sin, cleansed us from our sin, and he put his indwelling presence into our lives. The Bible also talks about this indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as the indwelling Christ. They're one and the same. So Christ indwells within us as believers, and now we, he left the holy of holies in the temple, and now we become his temple. We become his dwelling place, and Christ dwells within us through the Holy Spirit. And Paul is praying that that Holy Spirit that dwells within their hearts would strengthen them, would empower them. But notice what he says in verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What is he saying? He's talking about the indwelling presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit within us. And what he's saying here is, he's giving us a consequence of faith. He's saying here to us that the Spirit, is, is, is his role and his function is to make the presence of Christ our home. The Spirit is to, is to help us make all of our hearts, every aspect of our lives, a dwelling place in which God finds himself in Christ comfortable. Let me put it this way. I've been to a couple of people's homes for the holidays, and uh, when they invite me to their house, uh, I always notice that there's certain doors that are closed. Yeah, what does that mean? Don't go in there. Uh, And there are drawers that are closed. In other words, if they were open, you could look inside, but they're closed. Uh, Everybody has a junk drawer too, right? Or three or four or five. Now, 
What kind of guest would I be if I was invited into your home and I started opening the doors that you had closed because you did not want me to look inside of that room? Now, why would you close the door and you wouldn't want the pastor to look inside of the room? Some of you have kids and the reason why they don't pick up their clothes and you're trying to hide that or, or maybe in your bedroom or whatever, and so you close doors. Why? Because that part is off limits to the guests that are in your home. And I think what he's saying here is that Christ has not been invited into our lives as a guest. He's been invited to be a permanent dweller in our lives. And the Spirit of God then, his role and his function then is to open the doors and to open the drawers and open those aspects of our lives so that Christ can make himself at home in any area of our lives so that he can be Lord in all places and have access to everything. Because the tendency that we have, let's be honest, that after we get saved, we open ourselves up. I want to be your dwelling place. And then after a while, the tendency is, Oh, you can't mess with that now. And we're going to close that door. And you can be Lord over here, but God, you can't be Lord here. And, and God, you can't be Lord of my checkbook. And God, you can't be Lord of my time. And you can't be, be Lord of my internet searching. And you can't be Lord of my career. Or you can't be Lord of my relationship with my girlfriend. Or you can't be Lord in my... See what I'm saying? And so I think what he's saying here is that our faith in Christ should have such effect in our lives that we are willing to give Jesus Christ access to every aspect and every part of our lives. No reservations. No withholdings. No off-limits. Completely available. Where Jesus is just, man, he, he's at home. Our hearts are his home. And he has the freedom to go into your refrigerator at any time and get whatever he wants. Our son was home for, uh, our youngest was home for, for Thanksgiving. And uh, I walk in the kitchen and he's standing there as I've seen him all of his life looking in the refrigerator for something to eat. You know what I'm talking about, parents? Does a parent go, what do you want? You don't live here anymore. You need to ask permission, man. What do you mean? I was saving that for myself later on. You can't have that. I've had those discussions with my father when I was a kid. <laughs> I don't do that. Why? He's my son. I'm his father. And he has full and complete access to everything in our house. And he can open the refrigerator anytime, get wherever he wants, to satisfy any hunger pain he may think he has, even if he just got up from the table five minutes ago. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are teenagers. They have hollow legs. They can't be filled. I think that's the content of what he's saying here. So we have a consequence. We have the confession, the confidence, and the concentration of faith. Let's fifthly look at the community of faith. It's an interesting aspect about what he says here in verse 11 of chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11. Notice he says, and he gave, he, Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. There's my, that's my job description. I'm called to prepare and to, to be equipped and to preach and to teach so that you as the body of Christ might be equipped for the ministry that God has ordained or called you to do. And so in response to that, God calls and he equips and he empowers servants to do and to carry out the teaching ministry. 
This is what we talk about the message and how important the message is. And in the message of the New Testament, we are all then to be involved and to be a part of the ministry aspect of the kingdom of God and to the body of Christ and the evangelization of the world. And then notice for building up the body, that's the purpose that we can all be built up. But notice verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So my responsibility then is to do what? Is to proclaim the message, is to teach the truth. The New Testament concepts of not only the gospel message, but also the truths of now this new covenant relationship that we have with God. Why? It says here because uh, it, it equips the saints for the purpose of ministry. It says here too, if you look at the text, it's to, to bring unity of the faith. It's one of the responsibilities. To be unified in the faith. Why would that be important? It's important because we have one faith, and as one body, one spirit, one Lord, we have one faith, not multiple faiths, but we have one faith, and it's that faith that unites us, not only the conversion faith that we have, but also, I'm convinced, the content faith of how that faith then is to transcend itself through its truths in the faith, in and through our lives. So there's, there's one faith, there's one truth, there's one covenant, there's one, one gospel message, there's not multiple, there's not many, there's one. And that oneness was to, to unify the body of Christ. Now, if you take a look at the book of uh, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, there were times they were not unified doctrinally. And I think there's a reason for that is because there were men who were cunning, crafty, deceitful people who were seeking to divide the church. How? Through doctrinal disintegrity or not being uh, with the word that I'm looking for, not being true to the truths of the gospel and to the New Testament concepts of the new covenant that we have in Christ. They were polluting the truths. And I think that that is, that is an issue today. That is an issue today. Because we have a thing called political correctness that says you have a faith and I have a faith and, and it doesn't matter what your faith is and, and you shouldn't judge me for my faith and so therefore it doesn't matter what faith it is. We should be all of one faith and we should be you know, politically correct and, and not really stand in opposition or in conflict or, 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 or argue against faith. And, and so some, in, even in the evangelical circle, have, have, have sought to bring a unity of the faith in an unbiblical manner. For example, eternal security is not up for grabs. It's non-negotiable. And I don't care what they teach or preach about Jesus, but if they teach or preach that it's Jesus plus something, and I've got to work or earn or deserve my salvation, and there's some work or some effort or something that I have to do in order to not only maintain my salvation, but guarantee my salvation, or if they were ever to teach or preach that at some point you can walk away from your salvation, then that is not the truth. And there are many so-called evangelical churches today who do not believe in eternal security. There are many churches today who do not believe that Christ is the only means by which we're saved. And they pollute the gospel message for political correctness. And we need to be very, very careful today for those people that stand on the corner and play what I call the shell game. You ever seen anybody play that? 
A shell game is simply you've got three uh, cups or maybe three things and you've got one pea and, and you put it down and you, you, know, you cover it up and, and then the wager or the game is to, after they do this, you're trying to figure out which one it is. Right? Ever play that? And the objective of the person doing this is to do what? To deceive you. They don't want you to guess where the P is. And I'm convinced there are many theologians today who would disguise themselves as wolves and false prophets in the attempt to deceive people in regard to the truth about the gospel and the content of the message. And if we're not careful, we can easily be deceived. For I'm convinced that the closer we get to the end times, that even some of the elect themselves will be deceived. How can you join or how can you lock arms with and how can you walk alongside a group of people who does not embrace the same gospel and the same Christ that we do for political correctness or for unity? It's a false unity that won't hold up and won't stand up and only brings confusion into the body of Christ and eventually creates havoc for everyone who participates. So he says that we must have a one community built on one faith. And lastly, let's look at the conquest of faith. Interesting that he mentions that when he talks about spiritual armor, when he talks about the weapons of warfare. He talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, beginning with verse 10, he says, stand therefore. How are you going to stand? Now, the church in Ephesus is a church that was under heavy attack. Satan was, was bombarding the church with, with a fierceness to try to demolish and to destroy the work that the Spirit of God was doing, not only in their lives, but the work that God was doing to get the gospel out in a very pagan culture and a society that was inundated with demonic activity. Ephesus was not a pretty place. There was plenty of demonic activity going on and, and many false religions and false gods and, and pagan idolatrous stuff going on. And many of these new believers are being converted from all of that and they were joining now this new faith, being born again, coming to this new covenant in their relationship with God. And so there was a lot of stuff going on and it was hard for them to take a stand for the gospel. It was, it was, it was not easy. But I do think sometimes in some places and in some times that it's always, or I'm not going to say always, but sometimes it's often easier for us to stand against the, the schemes of the devil when we're standing fewer of us. I remember when I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I pastored there. There are not many evangelical churches left in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Not many. And I have found that there was less hypocrisy in the church there than any other place I've ever pastored. Why? Because they were few and far between. If you were a solid, born-again disciple of Jesus, you stood out like a sore thumb, man. And it was not easy. And so these people were kind of like that. They were trying to stand in a very hostile environment. He says, stand therefore, having fastened, uh, fastened on what? The belt of truth. That's one of, the, of the, the aspects of the weaponry. And having now put on the breastplate of righteousness, number two, and the shoes for the feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. That's the third. So he talks about three aspects about why we should clothe ourselves and how we should engage in, against the enemy, how we should become warriors for the Lord. And then he says, notice in verse 16, in all circumstances. It's almost, he said, now having said that, these three things, 
What I want you to do is I want to make sure that you don't forget this very important aspect about your armor that is strategically important for you as a believer. Because if you're going to stand, you're going to need to take up the shield of faith. You're going to have to take up the shield of faith for which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. He talks about taking up the shield of faith. And there are many scholars and and many people who try to help us visualize that. Some say that it's a small shield and some say it's a four-foot-long shield and about, uh, you know, so that they could, the whole soldier could, could hide behind. It talks about sometimes when they were advancing, they would put up their shields together and they'd link together so that as the flaming darts would come, it would protect them and they were watered down or they were uh, made of a material so that the arrows that were flaming that were being shot out by the opponents that were often uh, filled with an explosive device, so to speak, that when it hit, it would explode. And the attempt that the enemy tried to do was try to hit in a strategic place so that when it explode, it annihilated their adversary. And it describes here Satan and all of his demonic powers launching arrows against the believers in Ephesus. And in all of their attempt, they were attempting to not just launch an attack, but they were trying to destroy the believer in Ephesus. That's what Satan was trying to do. He's trying to annihilate them. He's wanting to to burn them up. And he's saying the shield of faith prevents that from becoming reality. But take a look at the word circumstance. That's an interesting word, isn't it? It says in all circumstances. As I said earlier, the church was under a heavy attack. And there were hard circumstances that they were under. Difficult circumstances. And so he's saying in all circumstances, you're in the heat of the battle. And there are circumstances that are, that are hurtful, that are painful, that are unpleasant, that you don't like, that you don't want, that you wish you were somewhere else. Don't let those circumstances destroy you. Hold up the shield of faith. You know, I've known more people that have been destroyed by circumstances in their faith than anything else. They didn't like what God was doing. I don't need God. They didn't understand what God was doing. Maybe they didn't like the purpose for which God was doing something in their lives. There is some circumstance where there might have been some physical challenge or financial challenge or relational challenge. And isn't it interesting that Satan likes to bring these circumstances into our lives? But wasn't it Job? If you think about Job and, and, and in his defense, he was under such terrible circumstances under the the oppression of Satan and his demonic forces that he not only lost every aspect of what he owned, his whole portfolio was burned up. He lost his house and his possessions and everything. Even his wife said, curse God and die. Why don't you just do that? And his friends as well didn't stand by him and he's all by himself. And yet Job had the faith to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's faith. I think that's the faith that he's talking about. That though he slay me, even if God were allowed to allow for whatever reason, whatever purpose, whatever plan grander than my own life that he may have in my demise, though he slay me, I will still trust the Lord. I won't let circumstances, whatever they may be, however hard Satan may come against me, I will hold up the shield of faith and I will trust God with all my heart. 
with all my soul and with all my might. I will trust the Lord. I know he's sitting on the throne. I know he is sovereign. He is Lord of my life. I have put my faith and trust in him, and there is nothing, yes, that he can't do. But even in all of that, under the hardest, most gruesome, most difficult circumstances, I trust God. And I'll not waver from my faith against him. So here's the final thing, the final question. Am I fully trusting? Fully trusting. Not partially, but fully. Completely. 100%. I don't know what your circumstances are today. I don't know what hardship you're going through. But I know that God is sovereign and God is sitting on the throne. And if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life because you place your faith and trust in him, you belong to the Father. And he has not forgotten about you. And because of that, he knows exactly where you are and knows exactly what you're going through. And there's nothing that you're going through right now, nothing that he hasn't foreseen, that he doesn't know. And if that's what he allows to happen in your life, you put up the shield of faith, man, and say, I trust in God. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Let's pray. Again, this morning, we get to celebrate with Luke and Emily as they give their testimony through baptism. If you are part of Luke or Emily's family or life group, would you stand so that we can just recognize you this morning? This is Emily. And Emily, have you asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire to let people know that you're his follower? Yes. Because of that decision, it's my privilege this morning to get to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism and we're raised to walk in newness of life.
And Luke, is it your decision that you've asked Jesus to come into your heart to be your savior and your boss? And is it your desire to let people know as they watch this this morning that you are his follower and seek to follow him each and every day of your life? It is. Because of that decision, it's my privilege to get to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're buried with Christ in baptism. And raised to walk in newness of life.